You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading is in John 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you bondservants, for the bondservant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. May God bless his word, and I think I'm supposed to say something else like, this is the word of God, right? All right. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, My wife and I, Marcy, and our boys, well, the Shermans have been here for about six years in Albuquerque, and before Marcy and I bought our house five years ago, I had like zero skills for things around the house. I could like clean and vacuum the house but like, what happens when a pipe bursts? I have no idea. You just like call Eric Lair and have him come over to your house and show you what to do. But now I think I can handle pipes because Eric has been to my house and he showed me what to do. I, I could like set the, the thermostat and like make the, the heater come on. But like when the, the, the thermostat goes out, uh, well, you just go buy a new one and then you'll search on YouTube how to install a new thermostat and like figure out where the wires connect and stuff. 
And now I've got that thanks to YouTube. I'm certainly no handyman, but YouTube and Eric Lair have provided me with a fair amount of skills. Shoot, because of J.J. Johnson's help, I think I might be able to change my next set of brake pads on my car if I need to do that. Uh, An area that I've really grown to love around the house and grown in some skills is in the backyard. I could always mow the lawn and weed eat. My dad taught me how to do those things very early to help around the house. But like growing and keeping the lawn, I had no idea what to do. And growing and maintaining now some fruit trees in the backyard is really a fun thing. And while I still don't know much, every year Marcy and I are learning more and more. And we have several fruit trees that are producing decently. Well, I don't know if what you would call what we do in our backyard agriculture Uh, But most folks in Jesus' day wouldn't have had the luxury to wait until their mid-30s to, like, learn such things. Well, undoubtedly, there were professional farmers who would have produced large amounts of crops for more urban populations. Most folks would have been more familiar with agricultural life than we are today. Even though I know many of you, Danielle and others, have some pretty killer gardens in their backyards. Still, though, even if you've never grown a cucumber or if you've never walked around in some of the, the vineyards and wineries down in the valley, uh, we city folk, I think, can understand much of what Jesus is describing in John 15, what you heard Byron read for us. The image that Jesus is going to hang his thoughts on is the idea of a grapevine. So we'll do the same in thinking through this incredible passage in two halves together tonight of life on the vine and then love on the vine. So first of all, life on the vine. So over the past two weeks, we saw Jesus describe the future reality for his disciples with him in heaven, and then what will be their present reality without him when he goes away, but that's okay for them, he told them, because he's going to send the helper, he's going to send the comforter, the strengthener, the Holy Spirit. And all of this talk was in that same upper room where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, where Judas left them in chapter 13, and then we saw this little throwaway statement at the end of chapter 14 that we didn't really uh, do anything with last week where Jesus says, rise, let us go up from here. So what follows in the next three, three chapters is still part of Jesus's like farewell speech, his going away, last final discourse with his disciples. But all of this is gonna happen as they're walking. We'll see them arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane at the beginning of chapter 18. So Admittedly, while all of this is purely and absolutely speculative, it could be that while they're walking, they're walking next to or nearby the temple. And if so, above the about a hundred foot gate or so that was the entry into the temple area, there was an elaborately decorative carved golden vine that went up around the entire hundred foot gate. It was outlaid with gold and ancient records tell us that wealthy Jews would have these golden leaves and grapes made that then they could go and have hung over all of this, over all this vine. So it could be that Jesus is leading his disciples as they walk and they're walking by the temple. He looks up and he points and he's pointing to this golden vine. He says, look at that. Well, I am the true vine. So that could be 
John doesn't tell us that that's happening. Certainly it doesn't have to be that they're walking by there and Jesus is pointing up to this. But the imagery of the vine and the vineyard is not speculative. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the most prominent symbols throughout the entire Old Testament. I counted nine different times in five different books in the Old Testament where the covenant people of God are referred to as a vine or as a vineyard. It's this vine, the the people of God that God has planted as a vine, and then he tends to them. He He works the vine so it produces more and more fruit. Most often when the vine appears in the Old Testament, the prophets are using this imagery to condemn Israel, to say you are not producing the kind of fruit that you ought to be producing. Jesus himself follows this tradition in the three other gospel accounts with several parables about fruitless vineyards and fruitless vines. But here in John 15, whether they're walking by the temple or not, Jesus says something startlingly different than any prophet before him. He says, I am the true vine. This is the last of the so-called I am statements of John, and he says, I am the one to whom Israel has always pointed. I am God's true and faithful son, the true vine, unlike Israel. I am the one who can, because of faithful obedience to God, actually be able to produce good fruit. And if we've been paying attention to John, this shouldn't be surprising, what Jesus has just said. We've already seen Jesus say that he is the fulfillment of the temple itself. We've seen him say that he is the fulfillment of the entire uh, ritual cleansing system. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish feasts, including Passover itself. He's even the fulfillment of different people in the old covenant people of God. He is the fulfillment of Moses. All of that has existed in preparation for and in pointedness to himself. So here Jesus says, I am the true people of God, the one who is in true covenant with God. All the promises made to ethnic Israel, including the preservation of the land itself. We see the land of Israel referred to as a vineyard. All of the promises to Israel, including the promises of the land, uh, get absorbed and fulfilled in Jesus. And in fact, Israel maybe should have understood this. If, if we were paying attention to the call to worship that Clint read for us in Psalm 80, the psalmist asked God to turn his attention back toward the vine that God had planted. But then the psalmist says, but let your hand be on the man on your right hand, the son of man who you have made strong for yourself. The vine and the son of man, there's like some overlap there. The vine is the son of man. Perhaps Israel should have, been, should have understood the vine to be the son of man, but they had no idea what was coming. Now, all this isn't to say that Jesus is here to condemn the Jews or he's looking to replace the Jews. He has come to create a new people, a new people that are made up of Jews and Gentiles alike who are all equally attached to himself, the vine, that they might be the branches. He is the vine, and verse 5, his new people who share in his life are the branches. Now, even if you've never walked around in one of the wineries down in the valley, my guess is you've seen a tree. And if you've seen a tree, I know there aren't many of them here in New Mexico, but if you've seen a tree, uh, it's kind of hard to tell like where the trunk actually be, or the trunk ends and the branch begins, right? Like where do you draw the line where the trunk ends and the branch begins. It's a hard thing to say. So let me ask you another question. 
What is a Christian? How would you define that? What, who is a Christian? An American? Someone, someone who goes to the right kind of church? Perhaps you because you go to the right kind of church? Someone who shares the right kinds of things on social media or someone who votes in the right kind of way for the right kinds of things. Someone who believes perhaps the right kinds of truths about God. Someone who maybe even believes the right kinds of propositional truths about Jesus, like who Jesus is. Well, let me say something a little provocative here. Uh, It's not just enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not enough to believe that he lived a perfectly sinless life. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity. He, it's not even enough to believe that he ascended back to life and ascended into heaven and uh, is now ruling the cosmos at the word of his power. That's not enough. You want to know how I know that that's not enough? Because even the demons believe everything that I just said. The demons believe all of that to be true. And they shudder, James tells us. So it's not just enough to just believe some propositional truths. Some propositional truths about the theological realities of who Jesus is. Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who, apart from any spiritual life of their own, has received a second spiritual rebirth from God by a desperate clinging faith in who Jesus is as the Lord and King over everything in my life. And because of that reality, because of that faith in who Jesus is, this spiritually dead person gets the life of Jesus like shot through his soul. The life of Christ himself injected into his veins so that he becomes alive with the life of Christ. So that it actually becomes difficult to determine where like the life of Jesus begins and the life of Nathan ends. Like it's very difficult. It ought to be able, or you, you ought to be, uh, it ought to be difficult for you to tell where Jesus ends and where the Christian ends, begins. All of this is just some overlap. This is what Paul is getting after. And perhaps my favorite verse in the entire Bible, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life of Christ injected into Paul. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus says that he is the vine and that we, his people, are the branches. And the father, the vine dresser, he tends the vine of his son to then make the branches more and more fruitful. Now, part of this is by removing dead branches. If you've got a fruit tree in your backyard, you know this. You've got to cut away the dead branches. You've got to make room for the good and healthy branches. And you've got to allow the tree to now devote more energy to the fruitful branches. And this should come as a warning to us. As we began asking last week in chapter 14, if there's no progress in godliness in your life, no sanctification, if you're not growing in love for God, if you're not growing in the hatred of your own sin, do you actually have the life of Christ infused in you? Are you actually a Christian? Now, I didn't mention this last week, but I've mentioned before, it's probably not all that helpful for me to like very introspectively uh, try to examine the amount of fruit in my life maybe like minute by minute. 
Are not all that helpful for me to do that, perhaps even daily or weekly, or perhaps even over the course of a month? We are fickle, fickle people. We are dumb, dumb sheep who forget who we are and who forget who our shepherd is. And praise the Lord that it's not the faithfulness and love of the sheep for the shepherd that makes them his sheep, but the faithfulness and the love of the shepherd for the sheep that makes them his sheep. But fruit can come and go over periods of time. But it's probably a good idea to once or twice a year, maybe three times a year, to pray and to take stock of, God, what are you doing in my life? Am I growing? Am I I loving you more and hating my sin more than I was this time last year? If the answer to that question is ever no, then our response then should never be, well, oh shoot, I, I don't think that I'm growing Uh, There's not significant growth in these areas over the past 12 months, so I'm going to really try harder this year with like some New Year's resolutions or something, as if a dead and dying tree could ever produce fruit on its own, as if like a a brown, dead and dying leaf that's that's like flying down the sidewalk could ever attach itself to a tree and produce life in itself. The response must always be, if we have taken stock of our life and said, am am I now on June 3rd loving God and hating my sin more than I was on June 3rd in 2017? If the answer to that question is no, then the answer and the response must be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to have your life within me. Only you can save you and you alone. Give me life. Give me life, and he will do it. This is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer, loves to respond to. And that God will then continue to prune and shape and mold you into someone who is actually growing, who is actually producing fruit. But sometimes he does this by pruning, by cutting. And pruning and cutting can often hurt I've been really helped by Beth Moore in thinking through this text this week. And she says, it's no wonder we, can, we sometimes can't tell the difference between God making us really fruitful and nearly killing us. Take heart, though. He only prunes what's productive. He prunes what's productive, forming and molding and shaping and producing more and more life. Have you felt and experienced that of him taking out and taking out and taking out and taking out in sometimes painful ways? The things, the extra stuff in our lives that we tend toward putting our trust and our hope in. So that in his great love for us, after some painful seasons of cutting, some painful seasons of pruning, we might actually then be left to say, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Not these other things that I'm putting my hope in that he showed me were not actually producing life. So take heart, he only prunes what's productive. So abide in me, Jesus says in verse 4. And I will abide in you. We don't really use this word in English anymore. Abide means to live, to dwell, to, to stay, remain. Remain in Jesus and he will remain in you. And you see that there's a mutual abiding there, right? A mutual remaining. There's absolutely nothing you can do, right? 
we were all leaves just floating down the sidewalk. There's nothing we can do to attach ourselves and produce spiritual life on our own. Absolutely nothing that you can do to even maintain spiritual life on your own. Only the vine can give you life. But there is a call here. Jesus calls us to keep ourselves in God's keeping love. Go read the short one chapter book of Jude if you want more on that, on keeping yourself in the keeping love of God. But Jesus tells us to keep ourselves in him, remain on him. I feel like I've been pounded in the gut over and over and over again in the past few months since I heard John Piper say, he said this, I'm astonished at people who say they believe in God but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. You feel that? Sometimes you perhaps observe that to be true in your own life at periods of your life. That you say, yeah, I believe that God is the place of greatest joy and satisfaction in the universe, but then live with only giving him 2% of your attention. And I think this is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting after here. Abide in him intentionally, like with discipline, with regularity. Remind yourself to remember Remind yourself to remember of the goodness of God's love. Like, read the Bible. Read books about the Bible. Come to church regularly. Like, build that in as a non-negotiable of your weekly and monthly and annual calendars. Just being here with one another. Pray. Like, actually pray. These are all ways in which We abide in his love. You want to know why you're likely discouraged, maybe now, perhaps other times in your life, by the lack of fruit in your life, or the lack of joy or peace in your life? Likely, though certainly not always, but likely it's that you're giving him about 2% of your attention. It's like you're an apple who's almost intentionally trying to pull yourself off of the vine, like barely hanging on by just like two little threads on the stem. It's no wonder that there's hardly any life in that thing. Kind of like, uh, like if you just go to the gym and lift weights like once a month, or if you go to CrossFit or something like every other week, it'd be ridiculous for you to leave the gym like for the first time this month. You spent an hour in there, lifted some weights, you came out, you looked at your body, and you're like, well, that didn't work. I still look the same, right? I don't look and feel amazing like CrossFit promised I would, right? You have to go regularly. You have to go with discipline so that over the long term, then you begin to see real growth, real life change. You feel better, right? But how often do we treat church attendance or prayer or Bible reading with the same expectations? Like, I'm going to open the Bible for the first time in six weeks. I read for 10 minutes, close it, and think, well, that didn't work. I don't feel any any different. All right, try to pray for the first time this week. Spend three minutes, get really uh, distracted, and say, it's not doing what it's supposed to. It's not doing what God promised he said it would. Spiritual exercise, which brings growth and change, becomes easier and more life-giving the more regular and ongoing it is. Abide in him. Find ways with discipline to keep yourself on the vine, and he promises he will respond with even more injecting life.
Abide in him and he will abide in you. And then he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I've said this once, but I feel like I've got to say it again. My natural response after hearing texts like these, perhaps even like the fruit of the Spirit text in Galatians 5, hearing about all these fruits that Jesus wants to produce in us, I'm tempted toward reading and hearing a text like this and thinking, all right, I got to get out of here and try harder. Like this is the week of more fruit. This is the week that I'm finally going to respond with greater love and joy and peace and patience. I'm going to do it this week. Well, maybe you've heard Paul Tripp's metaphor about nailing apples, though. I've got a dead apple tree, perhaps, in my backyard. Marcy looks out the window and she says, hey, I'd really like you to start working on that thing. And instead of like, really trying to get into the soil and see what's going on with the roots, I just go to Smith's and I load up the back of my car with like 200 gala apples. And I bring them home with a hammer and some nails or a staple gun and I get up there with a ladder and I just staple on 200 gala apples to this tree. And I walk in, put my feet up and say, did it, honey, we're good, check it out. Got a tree full of delicious apples out there. That's a ridiculous scenario. But I fear that many of us live our lives under the same ridiculous scenario. How often do we walk out of here thinking, all right, I'm going to make it look like I've got a lot of patience hanging on to this tree of my life. I'm going to cover all of the spiritual rot inside this week with a little bit of kindness or self-control. Perhaps even trying to convince myself that the tree of my life is actually really healthy by stapling on some gentleness and some peace. Then I'll be convinced that something good is happening inside. Today, by sheer willpower, I'm going to force myself to experience peace. I'm going to try real hard. Today, by sheer willpower, I'm not going to lose my temper with my kids with my spouse. Today, this week, by sheer willpower, I am not going to succumb to the bottle or to this drug or to the pornography on my phone. It's not going to happen. Shoot, it happened again. You guys, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Unless your life is on the vine of Christ, there is no fruit. The fruit of the Spirit are not things that you just like push real hard out of your pores so they start coming out by sheer willpower. The fruit of the Spirit are natural byproducts of the life of Christ, the Spirit of Christ now pushing through you of a tree that has a good root. Do not mistake fruit from the root. The root produces the fruit and never the other way around. Life on the vine though, life of growing in your love of Christ, growing in your utter dependence in him, on your utter day by day and minute by minute dependence on the work of the spirit in your life. 
life of having more and more of your vision filled up with the goodness of Christ, of 2% of your attention growing to 5% of your attention and then 15% of your attention and then Lord willing over the course of your life as you love him and grow in him like filling up 100% of your attention so that whatever we do whether eating or drinking or whatever it is we're doing we do it all to the glory of the Lord now when that's happening the life of the vine is changing and transforming us into the kinds of people that just has fruit just popping out of it you ever seen like a full and healthy cherry tree or a peach tree that's full of fruit this is a mature and joy-filled Christian so don't go out of here looking for peace or for gentleness or for self-control and then hope after the fact that you get some of Jesus thrown in. If you do that, you'll get neither. Go out of here looking for Jesus and the life that he gives and then you'll get all the other things thrown in. And what's the result of all this? What happens when we abide in Christ and he abides in us? Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If it really is becoming more and more that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, if my, my prayers are becoming more and more, like we've seen the last couple of weeks, uh, less self-centered, more God-focused, more kingdom-oriented, then the kinds of things that I will pray are the kinds of things that Jesus will pray through me. Like in chapter 12, verse 28, here's the kind of prayer that someone who is like a full a tree attached to the vine of Christ. Here's a fruit-filled Christian, the kind of prayer that he or she will pray. Father, glorify your name. The kind of Godward, kingdom-focused prayers that the Father loves to respond to and answer. These are evidences of actual uh, life in a Christian. He will answer these kinds of prayers. So Christ Church, let's, let's pray. Let's continue to pray individually and together. Let's grow in how we pray and what we pray for individually and together. If God were to answer every single prayer of yours over the past week, over the past month, every prayer that you have prayed to him over the past year, how many people will now be Christians? What kind of people, the members of your church, how would they be growing in their love of Christ if God answered every one of your prayers over the past year? These are the kinds of prayers that God will answer when Jesus is living in and through you. Why? Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When Christians are bearing fruit and having their prayers answered in this kind of way, God the Father gets glory. He gets honor. He gets praise by bringing this life, by bringing healthy, fruit-filled lives, which is the entire aim and end of creation in the first place. That God gets more and more glory. So all of this is life on the vine. This is what it's like to have his life become our life, to have his life begin now producing fruit out of our lives, to have even the father cutting, pruning in sometimes painful ways 
All to the glory of God the Father. But now, what's the result? What's the result? Secondly, we've, we've seen life on the vine. Secondly, now is to know love on the vine. The entire aim and end of creation has been the glory of God. We've seen that, but the, the glory of God is always grounded in the love of God. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The reason that there is a created universe in the first place, not because God needed someone to love, not because God needed someone to love him, but the reason that there is a created universe in the first place is love. That the love of the triune God, each person of the triune God in such love inwardly pointed in and of himself then exploded in all directions. That now, now there is a created universe that we might share, his creation might share in the love of the triune God. We're going to see this really specifically in chapter 17. And it is that love that we are invited into and we are to understand as our model for now how we are to love. As much as God the Father loved God the Son. Think about this. This is what Jesus is saying here. As much as God the Father loved God the Son, perfect, pure, holy, powerful, ferocious love from eternity past, so Jesus says he loves you. Powerful pure, holy, perfect, ferocious love from eternity past. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As much as the first person of the Trinity has loved the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity loves his people. That's unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. I don't even really know what to do with that. But it's now to this love that Jesus turns his attention in, through verse 17 and basically a commentary on the entire vine metaphor that he's just given. Some of the fruit that it appears that Jesus had in mind before, in this whole vine metaphor that we've seen in the first half of this section, some of the fruit that it appears that Jesus had in mind, he'll now explain, are obedience, perseverance, and love. But we can't forget everything that we've been thinking about up until this point. Like if I were just to open up the Bible and read John 15, 10 completely out of context, or just to open this thing up, put my finger on verse 10 and say, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We might come to the conclusion that dogged obedience is the way to enter into the love of God. But this is certainly not true. It is the life of Christ within us. Him dwelling uh, in us and us dwelling in his love that causes us to keep his commandments. To understand and be rooted in the love of God for us that now produces a love for him. To keep his commandments, our union with him. Apart from him we can do nothing, remember, that brings about the fruits of obedience. And just as we saw last week, Jesus promised to give us his peace. We saw this at the end of chapter 14, not as the world offers, but he gives us peace. Now, in chapter 15, he promises us full joy. He says, I come to give you joy, peace, 
and joy, full joy. And all of these are fruits of knowing, of dwelling and abiding in his love. But just as the love of God did something, it went somewhere and found its target in creation, God's love for his, his people does not end in us. God's love for his people goes somewhere. It does something and it finds its target. Verse 12 Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now let's come back to verse 13 in just a second. But Jesus says in verse 14 that perhaps the greatest fruit of his life within us, the clearest way that we can examine whether we are his disciples or not, is our love for one another. If we have loved as he loved... And then as a summary of all these things in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. This is what he is, this is like the greatest evidence of his work, of his life within us is our love for one another. Just as the father has loved the son, so the son loves us and that we then might love one another. But how's that going? How's that going? I hope growing, but perhaps not fully I don't think any of us here would say that we love one another as well as God the Father loves God the Son. So here's an exercise I learned a while back. Let's take all the times that the word love appears in the famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage. The one you probably have heard at a wedding or perhaps had read in your wedding. Let's replace the word love with your name and see how it goes. I'll use my name and you can just subconsciously think of your own. Nathan is patient and kind. Nathan does not envy or boast. Nathan is not arrogant or rude. Nathan does not insist on his own way. Nathan is not irritable or resentful. Nathan does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Nathan bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, praise the Lord, I think there's some growing truth to that. I think there's some more truth of what I just read than there was five years ago. But what I just read is not always true. I do envy and boast. I can insist on my own way and be resentful. But now let's do the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the point of all of this is that the only way that we can love like Jesus is to receive love from Jesus. We can't just read 1 Corinthians 13 and say, all right, I gotta go out here and try harder. To understand ourselves as weak, as helpless, as desperate, as unloving, but that he still loves us to death? Well, that changes everything. Because here's the rest of the story in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This isn't just some theoretical musing of Jesus. It's not just some observation of the way that the world works. Perhaps like Clint was praying for firefighters earlier. Perhaps Jesus had seen someone lay down his life for a friend and he had observed that to be theoretically true. No, in less than 24 hours, Jesus will experientially demonstrate this kind of love. 
and the giving of his own life for his friends so that we can then actually be considered his friends. No longer servants or slaves who would never dare to intimately know the mind of the father in the house in which the slave lives. Certainly not making requests of the master of the house, only living his life just to obey the master, but to be considered a friend of God. Jesus says, this is, this is incredible. But how might, how might we become his friends? Or even better, as John tells us from chapter one, to become sons and daughters with all of the accompanying rights and inheritance as a son or daughter of God? Well, it's through the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. He went to the cross, the place of his death, so that it might become the place of our life. That he became like us so that we might become like him. It wasn't that we of the world chose and loved him, but that verse 16, he chose you and loved you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. That your lack of love might be forgiven and transformed through his great love. That his being separated from the life and love of God the Father for the very first time in eternity might mean that you could be grafted into the life of God the Father for the very first time. Or as one pastor says, Jesus was cut off so that we would only be cut back. Pruned by God. Cut back in sometimes painful ways, but never sheared off entirely and thrown into the fire. We'll sing in just a minute. He loved me ere I knew him, before I even considered him. And if that's true, now all my love is due him. Are you on the vine Like, what are you attached to? Is the life of Christ what is grounding you? Or are you just floating around, trying to find something that gives you some sense of security? A little time here and a little time there, but it's just mostly floating along. Is your life now his life? Is his life now your life? Is your death now swallowed up forever because of his death? Is your sin and fear of judgment now done away with forever because of Jesus' great love for you, his sheep? If so, if the answer to those questions is yes, now love like he has loved you. Go out from here with the love of Christ compelling you, motivating you, moving you, changing you, and keep hanging on so, so tightly on his love for you. Abide in him and he will abide in you. If not though, friend, I can't implore you with any greater urgency. Come to Christ tonight. Have your sins forgiven. Receive his life in yours. Have the life of the very God of the universe injected into yours. We'd love to talk with you about what this might mean for you. The, the, The big deal that that might be for you. Love to pray with you, for you, what, what that means, perhaps even to help you properly set expectations. Becoming, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that all of your problems will now suddenly go away. That's not the way it works. It's not that you'll never worry about anything ever again. So yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to become a Christian or something. No, but it will mean that you'll have him. 
that you'll have Christ. And even among the painful pruning, that he has spoken these things to you, that his joy may be in you and that your joy might be full. Let's ask for his help. Father, we are thankful that you are the vine dresser. That you have planted a vine. Not faithless people, but that you have planted your faithful son. And that now we are growing from him and out from him, attached to him. The only reason that we have any life within ourselves is because we are attached to him and that you are doing something. It's not just that you might give us life, but that you might produce fruitful branches. So God, we are inviting and we are welcoming you to keep pruning. Keep pruning. Keep cutting the things in our lives that cause us to be distracted. Keep cutting the things away from our lives that are tempting us to want to detach from the vine. Help us to abide in you, Lord Jesus, and we trust in your promises that you will abide in us. Abide with us, Lord Jesus, and give us your life. Give us your peace and give us your joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.